Turn off the ringer. Hello and welcome back. Um, a few weeks ago, I went on my Instagram and I asked you guys to ask me questions about um, navigating life abroad as an international student and you guys pulled through and you asked me your questions. So today we're going to be sitting down and talking about all of it. I am so excited because when I initially asked the question, I was definitely a little skeptical. I was definitely a little scared because I was like, wait, are people going to respond? Are people going to have questions? I don't know. But you guys did have questions and I am here to answer them because I'm extremely excited and I love talking about just anything in general. But like navigating international student life, I am really passionate about talking because it's definitely a very untold story. Um, and the more that people talk about it, the more support we can find with with other people that have also experienced the entire journey of it. So I think this will be a really productive conversation. This is also going to be the first two-part episode that I'm doing. This week's episode, we're going to focus on the logistics of navigating life abroad. But a lot of you also had a lot of questions about things that weren't as logistical, but just more personal. And so next week, if that's something that you're more interested in, then that can be more applicable for you to listen to. Okay, I also want to have a disclaimer here that says that I am in no way a professional and all of the things that I say in this week's episode is based on my own experience with navigating the F1 visa and college and jobs after college and so on and so forth. So if you do want professional advice, go to your like student counselor in college, go to your DSO, your DISA office, whatever that is, and have a conversation with them. But with that, let's jump into your questions because I am extremely excited and I can't wait for this conversation. So let's go. Okay, so the first and most asked question I got was, is it difficult for international students to get internships slash jobs abroad? And when I say abroad in this entire episode, I'm going to refer to the United States because that's where I got my degree. But um, this is a really interesting question and it's tricky because is it hard? Yeah, of course it's hard. Like, obviously, like, I think at this point we've established that the international student experience is is difficult and it's intimidating. Um, but while it is a really challenging process, I am also a firm believer of the fact that if you look in the right places and in the right way, that it gets a little easier to find opportunities. Now, don't get me wrong, it is still a very difficult process, but I do think that we can make a few tweaks to how we look to be then looking in the right places for all the jobs. Because one of the biggest mistakes that I think a lot of international kids make is that we tend to cast our net only on like the big fish in the sea. Like, oh, I'm only going to look at Facebook or Microsoft or like big four, or big three, like all these big firms, not realizing that there may be other opportunities that we're missing out on. Um, so I wanted to talk about that a little bit. I guess the most important thing that I think you can do as an international student for job for job hunting is networking. Networking was my best friend when I was looking for jobs. For a little context, for my first three years in college, um, I exclusively worked with startups because that was the space that I was interested in. But my senior year, the summer before my senior year, I decided that I wanted to work at a bigger firm and I wanted to work in consulting. And so I changed my approach up a little bit. And then last summer is when I started networking with people to understand what they do, see the firms they work at, and just kind of get my foot in the door that way. 
Now, the reason why I think this is important is the following. When you're international, the reason why firms are a little more hesitant to hire us is because it's a lot of investment in an individual, right? Like it's a lot of intellectual investment, a lot of financial investment, especially because they sponsor your visa, right? And so and so it really helps to have people at a firm vouch for you or refer you or speak highly of you when you're not in the room um, because that just gives you an edge over other applicants and makes you quote unquote like worth their investment even though you're an international kid. So networking is definitely the best thing that you can do. The way I networked was I just went on LinkedIn and I literally cold messaged people for weeks on end. I would have 10 to 20 networking phone calls every single week. And even though I was having like 20 phone calls, mind you, like from every 50 phone calls that I had, I would get maybe like four or five referrals, right? It's, it's hard, but it works. And that ultimately, I definitely think is what resulted in me me getting my offers and then also just building really good relationships and mentor and finding good mentors within the industry that I wanted. So if you want me to talk more about networking, let me know and I will fully comply and make an entire episode on it because I love, I love, love, love networking. But networking is definitely the best thing that you can do as an international kid. The other thing that I think is hard to hear, and I hate it when some of my mentors told me this, but it's the fact that you can't be too picky when it comes to finding a job. If your end goal is, I want to settle in America and I want to find a job here and I want to do this, then you can't be too like choosy about what you get and what you apply for. Now, let me like, let me, let me explain a little bit more. I'm not saying that if you're really interested in finance that you should go do marketing. No, I'm not even saying that if you're in business that you should try like doing med school or law school just to stay in the country. No, I'm just saying that if you're interested in consulting, for instance, you may have to recognize that it's a competitive industry. And so maybe having your options open would help. Like if you're applying for financial consulting, then maybe even apply for some investment banking roles. Like even look at corporate strategy, maybe look at business development. If you're interested in marketing, then you can also look at business development. You can look at like SEO specific roles. Don't just look at big companies. Don't just look at the big names. I would also say look at tinier startups or medium-sized firms that still sponsor you. because there definitely are some firms out there. It's difficult to find, but they exist. And I think that the more you're flexible with where you're trying to work or the kind of work you're trying to do, um, the easier it is, the easier it's going to be for you to find a job because you can always internally make the switch or once you have a little bit of experience, try looking for something else. But that like preliminary locking in of your job, especially on your OPT, which we'll get into later, is definitely extremely important. So I would say don't be too picky, go in with an open mind and just like see where it takes you. And the last thing that I will say in answering this question, um, and this doesn't directly answer the question, but it is a piece of advice that I wish someone told me, um, and it sounds very intuitive, but it wasn't, is that every conversation you have with someone at a firm or like just like with a company, please ask them if they sponsor H-1B visas. If your company doesn't sponsor your H-1B visa or your work visa, then working for them isn't going to be the most productive because they won't be able to help you continue working in the United States after your OPT expires. And so 
it's easier to have conversations like that up front and just ask them straight up because then it saves you the pain of getting invested in firms that you really end up liking and then you find out oh wait they don't sponsor h1b visas and then it's heartbreak and then you're sad and all of that so it i think that makes the whole process even harder so to make it a little less challenging i think it helps to just have those conversations straight up okay next question does going to a specific university mean that you earn higher or lesser than your peers um no, the short answer and the long answer to that question is no. Just because you go to different universities doesn't mean you earn differently. You all make the same amount if you're working for the same position. Like, I work with people right now that are my age, but they went to Cornell and some went to Villanova and then they also went to Lehigh and then I went to Penn State, some went to Ohio State, whatever. You get the point. Point is, we're all across the board with the kinds of colleges that we went to in terms of quote-unquote rankings and someone from an Ivy League school and a Big Ten school is going to make the same money, same amount of money as long as you're working the same position. What does change your earning bracket is if you have a master's degree. So I do know a bunch of my peers who are my year, but they have a master's degree and they're earning slightly more. But again, that also differs on the company that you work for, the position that you apply for, and if they account for those differences in educational background. Um, so yeah, no, it doesn't matter where you go to school. At the end of the day, when you get a job, you all usually just make the same amount as, as long as it's like the same position. Um, so yeah, I think that that is also something to consider if you're still in high school and you're planning on going abroad for your education and you're stressed out about not getting admissions in Ivy Leagues. Please don't, because I remember everyone in high school when I was going through the process being stressed out and thinking, oh, wait, like, if we don't go to Ivy Leagues, then, like, we won't have a good future and we won't sell abroad. Like, no, like, you don't have to go to an Ivy League or, like, a really, like, top-ranked school to get a good job and do well after. So hopefully that takes the stress off you. Okay, the next question that I got, and I got... This, I think, after the first question that I answered was the second most asked question. And all these questions were about, hey, can you talk about OPT, CPT, and what that entire process of sponsorship looks like? So let's talk about it. It's a little confusing, but it's important. So I think it would really help. Okay, let's start with CPT. So CPT is curricular practical training. Now, what your CPT does is within your F1 visa, which is your student visa, which is four years or like the time of your educational tenure, you can get this CPT period approved during which you can be hired for internships um, by firms in the country. Having a CPT basically lets you work either full-time or part-time in the area of your study. And to go through the entire application process and get that CPT stamp on your I-20, you need to go and have a conversation with your DSO and confirm all the paperwork you need. Um, but that is a process that basically allows you to have an internship. Now, anytime you want to have an internship over the summer, like between freshman and sophomore year or sophomore and junior year, you can't work or have that internship unless it's approved by your school and they give you the CPT for that. So you'll work with your employer and your um. DSO at school to get together all the paperwork you need and then send it over for approval. Um, 
once that CPT is done, you only get that CPT approved for a specific period of time for a specific employer. So it's very catered to your position, your work, your um, your area of study, how long you're going to be working for, so on and so forth. And they usually need to know whether or not you're going to be working full time or part time um, for that position as well. So, for instance, if you're doing like a summer internship and that's the only thing you're focusing on, then that would be like a like a full time role over the summer for a specific amount of time, as opposed to if you were also working with them during the semester while you were a student, then you would get like a part time CPT and get that approved by your DSO and so on and so forth. Now, you can have more than one CPT um, because it changes by employers at the same time. But you do have to keep in mind that if you do a full time CPT for a whole year, then you can't get your OPT. So you want to be careful of that or just keep that in mind when you make any employment decisions, because the OPT is what helps you get a job. Sorry, the OPT is what you need post grad to maintain your job or to be able to work. But the CPT is like curricular practical training so a lot of the times it's also like it's um compulsory for you to do as part of your education abroad because it's kind of like work experience now on the flip side of this you have the opt which is optional practical training you see how like cpt is like curricular practical training so it's part of your curriculum but opt is optional because maybe you want to go back home after you study like you don't have to do it but you could do it so now the opt is is what allows you to work after you graduate. Usually, once you graduate, you apply for the post-completion OPT, um, but there are some cases in which some students need to apply for a pre-completion OPT, which is a conversation to have with your specific DSO. But the main point of it is your F1 visa, right, which is your student visa, gives you four years of educational tenure or the length of your education, plus one additional year of OPT. So in that OPT period, you get to work and you get to have a full-time job. Now, the OPT becomes relevant in your life a few months before you graduate. Um, there's a specific window that's like a few months before you graduate till a few months after you graduate. And in that window is the only time that you can actively and correctly apply for the OPT. Again, have these conversations with your DSO. But how it works is you get your OPT and you graduate school and then you get it in the mail, right? You don't need to have a full-time job to get an OPT. You get the OPT regardless of whether or not you have a full-time job. But let's say that you're unemployed and you get the OPT. You then only have three months of unemployment on your OPT. After those three months, if you still don't find a job, then you have to leave or like you have to go back to school or something like that. Um, but... You get three months of unemployment on your OPT. If you do have your job, however, then your OPT is what helps you like stay, maintain your status as an international student and like continue to stay in the country. Now, having the OPT gives you one extra year after you graduate, right? In which you, you're authorized to work um, in the States. But if you have a STEM major, then what you get is a STEM OPT, which instead of one year gives you two extra years. And so the reason why a lot of people want the STEM extension is because then after graduation, you have, you have three years instead of one year to apply for the H-1B visa, which is the work visa. And because it works on a lottery system, 
it increases your chances if you have more chances of entering the lottery, which obviously increase if you have more time in the States. So that's the difference between STEM OPT and like a regular OPT. But I think the most important piece of advice I would give with the OPT, the CPT, anything that you're dealing with is please just talk to your DSO. Like it is so important to keep um, actively keep updating your records with them whether it's like your field of study your internships I'm still working with my DSO and I graduated and I work a full-time job and I still need to be in contact with them to get certain information updated and it's extremely important that everything that you have on your record is always updated which is why it's important to like be in touch with them ask them the right questions make sure you're on top of everything so that is the number one piece of advice I would give um and hopefully this helped the other thing about the OPT you need to keep in mind is that when you apply, if you have a job, then a lot of the times they'll ask you to um, fill out how the job that you have is related to your field of study. And so for me, because I was going into consulting, I had to justify why and how my economics degree would be applicable to my role as a consultant. So keep that in mind, be prepared to kind of have that little connection drawn um, because they want to be able to see how what you're learning in school applies to how you're job hunting in the market. The next question I got was also about the H-1B and it said um, how do companies sponsor your H-1B visa or how does the sponsorship process work? Okay I haven't gone through this yet so take everything I say again with a pinch of salt talk to your visa and immigration people at your firm talk to your DSO but Essentially, when a company can quote-unquote sponsor your visa, it basically means that they're willing to help you apply for the H-1B lottery. Now, the H-1B lottery is drawn every year, um, and every cycle that they draw it, it's it's random, and because it's a lottery, there's a lot of people that enter it, and only 20% get the actual H-1B. The H-1B is what you need to continue working in the States. If you don't get the H-1B after a certain number of years, either you go back to your home country or you go to another country and come back to the States on an L-1 visa. Um, how the sponsorship process works is pretty like straightforward and easy. Once you start at your place of employment, you basically just need to be in touch with your visa and immigration officers and they'll tell you when they need specific information or documents from you. And once you sort of give them those documents, they kickstart the process for you. They put your name in the lottery. They explain to you how like the H-1B cap and everything works. And once your name is in, you just kind of cross your fingers and wait. Like there isn't really much to it, um, which is why it can be a really intimidating and scary experience. But if it helps, we've all been there. Uh, we all are there. Most of us are still on there. Most of us are still there. Um, and I think the best thing you can do is rely on every single resource that you have, whether that's your university or whether it is um, the visa department at your place of employment. Okay, those are all of the questions that I wanted to talk about for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And I really, really, truly hope that this helped ease your anxiety, helped you navigate the whole visa process a little easier. Um, it's a very overwhelming and scary process. So if you have more questions, please reach out to me. And I am more than happy to have a conversation about it, um, whether it's offline or whether you want me to answer more questions on the podcast. I understand what it's like to go through it, and it's a very annoying process. So I'm here to talk. 
um, here to give advice. Like I said, next week's episode is going to be more about the questions that I got regarding making friends as international students or navigating life or balancing personal life with family back home and school and all of that. And so if that's something that interests you and you think is more applicable to you, even if you're not an international student, then maybe if you feel so inclined, you can come and listen to that. But that was all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I hope I helped you a little bit and I will see you guys next week.